Brothers and sisters, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and verses 35 to 45. I know we, we took a, a two-week break from the Gospel of Mark, and now we are, are back in Mark's Gospel, picking up where we last left off. So we'll be looking at Mark, chapter 10, verses... 35 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45. Brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Thus far, is a reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I ask, what does, what does greatness look like? What does greatness look like? Well, the answer should differ depending on who you ask. Right? The, the Christian's definition of greatness ought to be significantly different than the way in which the world defines greatness. And it's obvious the way that the world defines greatness, isn't it? As it's kind of shoved before our faces each and every day, as you turn the television on, as you, as you look upon the Internet. Right? We are able to tell how the world defines greatness by those whom they value in society, those that they, they esteem in society. Right? We know how the world views greatness, how the world defines greatness, by those whom they they prop up and tell everyone else that we ought to emulate. We know how the world views greatness by the things that people strive towards and, and work after. And what are those things? It's money. right? It's It's prosperity. It's fame. It's power. It's authority. It's possessions. It's the biggest, the best, the newest. 
It's the for the younger crowd, right? The 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 most Twitter followers or Instagram followers or YouTube subscribers. And what is behind the the world's idea of greatness is the is the sin of pride and the sin of ambition, of honor of men. And knowing this, right, the definition of greatness for the Christian ought to be radically and drastically different. As the church are those who have been called out of the world, as the church is those who are supposed to be spiritually minded, not carnally minded. And yet, sadly, right, the, the world's definition seems today to be very similar to the Christian's definition of greatness. Which is one reason why I think the church has, has lost its flavor in our society. Right? It's a reason why the church has, has lost its saltiness. The reason why the the church has lost its distinctiveness that it has had over the centuries. And this really, I think, flows out of two reasons. One, because Christians have not watched over their hearts. Christians have not watched over their hearts. And then secondly, Christians do not understand the nature of God's kingdom. Right? We failed to watch over our hearts and we have failed to comprehend the nature of God's kingdom. You see, the pride and the ambition of the world is natural to every single one of us here today. And if we do not watch over our hearts, we will soon find ourselves desiring the very same thing that this world props up. We will find ourselves being driven in pursuit for the greatness that this world holds up before our eyes and tempts us with each and every day. We see those around us who have possessions, who have power. And what is it that so many Christians say? Why can't I have those things? Why is it that they have them? Why do unbelievers prosper all around me? Why is it that they have wealth and possessions and I'm the one who is living uprightly? I'm the one who is obedient to God and yes, the the unbeliever continues to pass me by in this world. This is because we don't understand the nature of God's kingdom. We don't understand the nature of His kingdom. This world, here and now, is the only thing unbelievers have to look forward to in this life. This world here and now is all they have. The world to them is heaven. This world and this life is the end for which they believe they were created. And so it's their desire to experience the riches and the greatness of this life now. They want the greatness that the world props up and tells them is greatness. And sadly, for many Christians, they've bought into that lie. That heaven is now. That your best life is to be sought now. That greatness is to be had now. That glory is to be attained now. Not realizing what Christ said. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And this is not then unlike what some of the apostles thought in our text today. We see James and John desired prosperity and glory now, in the present age. And that desire resulted from their ignorance 
over the nature of the kingdom and due to the ignorance of the sinfulness of their own heart. They didn't understand their own heart. And so they wanted an earthly kingdom and earthly glory among men now. They desired greatness. But that greatness was distorted by their sinful hearts and by what the world told them greatness involved. And so it is in our text today that Jesus seeks to correct this misunderstanding of the apostles. It is here that Jesus will bring clarity to them of what true greatness in the kingdom of God consists of. And so we're going to look at our text today then under three main points. Right? And we're going to do so looking to receive and to hear and to understand what it is that greatness in God's kingdom consists of. And so our three points are this. First, greatness desired. Greatness desired. Point number two then is, is greatness defined. Greatness defined. And then point number three is greatness displayed. Greatness displayed. So greatness desired, defined, and displayed. So point number one, greatness desired. Please look with me, if you will, once more in your Bibles, starting in verse 35. We read this. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now, James and John, if you recall, were the second set of brothers that Jesus called unto Himself. Uh, Earlier in Mark's Gospel we read, He first calls Peter and Andrew, and then He calls James and John, who were told that were in their fishing boat repairing a net. It is actually James and John, along with Peter, you remember in Mark chapter 9, who were brought up to the mountaintop to see the transfigured Christ, But what we see here is that even Jesus' closest confidants, His closest friends, those those who were nearest to Him, still dealt with sin and error. This becomes obvious to us in their question, verse 35, when they ask Him, Teacher, we want You to do for us whatever it is we ask. Now, brothers and sisters, if you have children, You've probably heard this before. This, this probably sounds familiar to you. Right? It sounds a lot like what your child may have come up to you and asked. When what they really want, they know they shouldn't ask for. And so they first come up to you, right, with the intention of getting you to commit, right? They want you to say yes. So that once they actually tell you what they, what, what they want, you can't go back on your word. You're stuck. That's that's what they're doing. And this is what the apostles are trying to do here. And yet Jesus, perceiving their ill motives, He refuses to commit to their request until He first hears what it is they want to know. And so He says to them, what do you want Me to do for you? And in verse 37 they say, we want you to grant to us, one of us, to sit at your right hand and the other to sit at your left in your glory. And it is in this question here that we discover the greatness in the kingdom of God that these two men desired. 
Right? It's in their question. We, we, we realize what they thought greatness to be. Right? Their desire was for the two highest seats of honor and glory next to our Lord Jesus. This is what sitting at the right hand and left hand of an earthly prince or king would have represented. Right? The two highest seats of honor and glory. And this is what they wanted. This is what they're asking for. They're saying, Jesus, when You set up Your earthly kingdom that we are anticipating You will, the greatest kingdom of all, give to us, James and John, the two most prestigious seats in Your kingdom next to You in glory. That's what James and John here are asking for. And so although James and John are true believers, we see that true believers can still sin in heart by our unlawful desires. Right? We can sin in our ignorance and by what we say, as James and John reveals to us in this question today. Right? Their hearts were full of pride and ambition as they longed to have greatness among men, as they clung to this idea of an earthly kingdom, as they desired immediate and present glory now. And this petition before the Lord puts this on full display to us. And this is the reason, brothers and sisters, that our Lord will not answer their petition. You know, we sit here today and we we read this and we hear this and we understand the folly of their question. And yet, Christians each and every day petition the Lord in this very similar manner. We hear this message preached. We hear what Jesus has to say to these sorts of questions. And yet Christians every day come to the Lord petitioning in this same foolish manner. We treat God as our personal genie to give us what we want. We want great wealth, Lord, we pray for. We want perfect health. We want greatness. We want honor. We want esteem before men. We want our greatness to be magnified to the world. We want our glory to be seen amongst others. And it's those sinful motives of pride and ambition that drive these petitions to the Lord. And then people wonder why our Lord does not answer their prayer. You see, brothers and sisters, we do not need to preface our prayers as James and John did with Teacher, we want You to do for us whatever we ask of You. When our petitions conform to the will of God, which is revealed to us in the Word of God, there is no need to trick our heavenly God. Right? We don't have to trick Him by trying to get Him to commit ahead of time to something else that we, we know He does not want for us. And we must know also that God will never answer a request that goes against His will. So why ask it? It's sinful to ask it. But when we pray according to the will of God, we then can come boldly before our Lord in prayer. Right? We can come confidently before the Lord when our prayers have their ends being God's glory and not our own. This is what John tells us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. We read this. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 
Brothers and sisters, God hears the humble cries of the saints. He hears the humble pleadings of His children. But He resists the proud. He turns a a deaf ear to the proud. And so this should teach us, brothers and sisters, that we must keep a close watch over our hearts. Right? We must watch over our hearts. We must examine our hearts. We must look to uncover the secret motives of our hearts. Why am I praying this prayer to the Lord? Is it for my own glory? Or is it for the glory of God? And then we are to pray according to His will. Not our own will. It is only when out of humble submission, resting in faith, resting by faith in the promise, that we can know that God hears our prayers and will answer them. It is when our desire is for His greatness and for His glory that we can have assurance that He hears the prayers of His children and that He will answer them no matter how long it seems He is taking and answering them. Because oftentimes He delays and delays and delays. It is when we know that our petitions accord with the Word of God that we can trust and rest that they will be answered. Because faith in the immutable God who cannot go back on His promises assures you and I of that. Right? Faith in the immutable God who cannot go back on His promises assures us that He hears and will answer our petitions. Also then, what this question from James and John ought to show us, ought to teach us, is that we ought not to be proud. Right? We ought not to be puffed up by our own wisdom and knowledge. But rather, we ought to humble ourselves, acknowledging our own ignorance, and constantly, continually be going before God in prayer, asking that He would illuminate us by the work of the Spirit. Because as we see, James and John, they didn't understand what they were asking. They had no clue what it was they were saying. This is what Jesus responds to them with in verse 38. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And rashly and confidently, they answer, we are able. Unaware of their complete and total lack of inability to do the things that they have just said. But we see that they answered this way because they were in a rush for earthly rewards and temporal greatness. They were ready to be done with the journey and were ready to go on to receive their glory. They wanted to bypass the cross and go straight to the crown. But you see, this is because their desire was aligned with the desires of this world. The greatness that they wanted was the greatness of this world. And so they wanted to bypass suffering. They didn't want to deal with trials. They didn't want to to deal with tribulation. But Jesus tells them, "You you cannot drink this cup. You cannot be baptized with this baptism. This is my, this is my cup to drink. This is my baptism to endure. Right? We have to understand that we as as fallible, sinful, weak people are incapable of to suffer the sufferings of Christ. Cannot do it. Would not be able to bear that heavy burden. 
Now this drinking of the cup and this baptism that Jesus speaks of, we have to understand is metaphorical. They're metaphorical. What Jesus is describing for us is the, is the wrath and the suffering that He was to bear for the sins of His people. And so to drink this cup was to experience the fullness of God's wrath upon the cross. Jesus Himself understood this. This is why He prays to the Father in the Garden in Gethsemane in Matthew 26.39. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not I will, but Your will be done. Jesus understood what that cup was. Right? It was, it was the, the full measure of God's wrath upon Him on the cross. And so what then is the, what then is the baptism that Jesus here speaks of? Well, we can think about what happens in our own baptism. Right? We are immersed in water. We are covered in water. And so what Jesus is saying here in this context, what He's talking about in being baptized is being drowned or covered or overwhelmed in the judgment waters of our God. This is what Jesus is to take upon Himself. This is what He is to bear. And in Christ's accomplishment of this mission, Right? God is going to be glorified by it. And so James and John saying that they were able to do this, but what they unintentionally were doing were seeking to detract glory from God and steal it for themselves. And saying, we are able to do this. We don't need you, Jesus, to do it. And so the greatness they desired needed to be corrected by our Lord. Their eyes and hearts needed to be redirected Right away from worldly, earthly kingdom thinking to heavenly, spiritual kingdom thinking. And this is what Jesus does. This is what He provides for them. And this leads us then into our second point, which is greatness defined. Greatness defined. Look with me, please, starting then in verse 39. And they said to Him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so I want us to see here, the first thing that Jesus points out to them in in His response is their mistaken thinking and desire for glory and honor with Christ then without first suffering with Him. This is the first thing that He points out. I've said this many times to you all, brothers and sisters, right? That suffering comes before glory. Suffering is the only way to glory. Right? Suffering is what the church militant is destined for. This is what we have been called to as sojourners and pilgrims and aliens and, a, and strangers in a land that is not our own. As one author puts it, if we look to wear the crown of glory, we must first be content to wear the crown of thorns with Christ. Right? 
If you look to wear the crown of glory, we must first be content to wear the crown of thorns with Christ. This is what Jesus is seeking to to demonstrate to them. This is the exact same thing that Paul recognized, isn't it? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Henceforth, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Suffering, then glory. This is what Jesus is pointing out to to the apostles here. Now there is some distinction that has to be made, right? Jesus' suffering was vicarious. It was substitutionary. It was redemptive. Our suffering is not. We already pointed out that Jesus tells them they are utterly incapable of of suffering the punishment that He was to suffer. But what Jesus says here, when He says that you are going to drink of the cup and you are going to be baptized, what He's saying is that we are going to be identified with Him in our suffering. We are going to be identified with Christ in our suffering. What does Jesus say? To those who want to come after Him, He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. And so we are to drink the cup and we are to be baptized with Jesus in the sense that we are to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. That is what Jesus is saying. But recognize that this adds nothing to the perfect work of Christ. This does not imply that Christ's suffering is lacking in any way. Christ drank of the cup fully, which is why He could say on the cross, it is finished. And yet, brothers and sisters, how many Christians today don't want to be identified with Christ in this way? As J.C. Ryle points out, today many are like James and John. They want, to, they want the present enjoyment from their religion, but want to forget about the struggles in the cross and go straight to the crown. Isn't this true? People today avoid trouble at all costs. This is one reason why Christianity has become so watered down. Because we're willing to cast aside historic doctrines of the faith that the world now finds reprehensible in order that we can escape persecution and suffering ourselves. But how soon we forget or what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Or what Peter and John say in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they rejoiced for suffering for Christ. They recognized that in their suffering, they were partners with Christ in suffering. So often we associate shame with suffering. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this, as believers, we ought to associate honor and privilege with suffering for the name of Christ in the Gospel. And so Christ tells James and John that they must first suffer before glory. They are going to drink of the cup. They are going to be baptized. They are going to be partners with Christ in suffering. And Jesus was right, wasn't He? These two men surely remembered these words when they suffered. Remember Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It is James who is put to death under Herod. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. We're told that John is banished to the island of Patmos. Why? 
all for their testimony of Christ. Christ was prophetic here in His Word, was He not? Right? Jesus says, I can, I can promise you suffering though, but what your place in the kingdom will be, He says, I cannot, for this has been appointed by the Father. Right? This is important. Right? Christ came into the world not to bestow worldly honor and privileges upon men. He came into the world to bestow upon us spiritual riches in Himself through His redemptive work. That is why Christ came. Now, the response of the other ten to what John and James say is quite interesting, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We're told they become indignant over what James and John have said. But I want you to to, to see the hypocrisy in their indignation. For many of you who were here probably two months ago, you recall very uh, succinctly, it's, it's probably clear in your mind, What were they scolded for by Jesus not too long ago? All of them were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, were they not? And now here it is. The other ten are indignant. They're angry with James and John that they would seek these places of honor and glory. But doesn't their reaction remind us all too often of our own reaction? Doesn't their reaction remind us of our own reaction? That we are more indignant, we are more angry, we are more offended with the sins of others than we are with the sins of ourselves. Even when our own sins are the same sins of others. We find it easy to to point out the faults in everyone else, forgetting to to stare and look back at who is, is looking at us in the mirror. We need to remember to to remove that giant plank from our own eyes before we look to remove the speck that is in the eye of a brother or sister in Christ. What this should also teach us is that we are not to get angry or irritated if someone is esteemed more highly than ourselves. Okay, And don't we find ourselves oftentimes guilty of this as well? We don't like it when a brother or sister gets something that we think we deserve. Why are they getting this opportunity? Why are they being praised? I'm the one who has the gifts. I'm the, I'm the one who's better. I'm the one who did all the work. And yet, brothers and sisters, this should not be so amongst God people. Rather, we ought to rejoice when our brothers and sisters are praised. We ought to rejoice when they are esteemed highly. Even if that means you are overlooked, under-acknowledged, under-recognized. We ought to rejoice when our brothers and sisters are receive good gifts from the Lord. Not envy those things. Not be angry with them. Not become indignant over it. But be glad for them. Praise God for what they have been given. Now after this anger, we are told that Jesus then calls them all to Himself in order to now set them straight. And this is what we read, then Jesus says in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. It's here, brothers and sisters, that our our point number two is defined. Greatness defined. 
Here it is. Here we have it answered. But right before this, Jesus makes a, a good. He distinguishes something, doesn't he? Right? He first points out the way that earthly rulers, kings, magistrates, magistrates rule, and he says what they lord it over their servants. Right? They revel in it. They they love the power and authority that they get to exert over people. They love to be served by people without doing any serving. And Jesus says, so it shall not be in my kingdom. Here Jesus says, His kingdom is the exact antithesis to the kingdom of this world. And here then is, is where Jesus goes on to define right, what, what greatness in His kingdom consists of. And what is that? He says, it's being a servant to all. You want to know what greatness in the kingdom is? It's being a servant to all. Right? This world values preeminence. We value authority. We value power. We are a proud and haughty people who love to be applauded. We love to have the pats on the back. But this is not the way with God's people. Right? Rather, greatness in the kingdom of God consists in humility, service, and submission. This is what greatness consists of in God's kingdom. Right? We are to walk humbly before God. We are to walk humbly before one another, putting the interests and the concerns of others ahead of our own. Right? We are to be a people who are constantly in service to one another, doing whatever we can to, to further our brother and sister's good in this world. And we are to submit ourselves to that service out of love of God, out of love of neighbor, right? out of the sake of the Gospel, out of sake for the name of Christ. As Sinclair Ferguson says, in God's kingdom, greatness is measured by service, not the amount of servants you have. He says, in God's kingdom, greatness is measured by service, not the amount of servants you have. And why is that? Why is that? Well, it leads us to our third and final point, which is greatness displayed. Right? You, I, and every other believer who walks this earth ought to be in service to one another because this is the manner in which Christ came in His incarnation. And as Christ's disciples, right, we are to follow His pattern. Right? We are to model after His example. As Jesus tells us in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, look to Christ. You want to know what greatness looks like? Look to Christ. Don't look to this world, but fixate your eyes on Christ. As He came, not as an earthly king, as an earthly ruler, as a great man, who was esteemed among men, but He came as a poor, lowly, humble servant. He came not to be served, but to serve. Christ came not to take, but He came to give. And He gave to us that which was most precious. Right? He gave to us of Himself. He, he gave to us His life upon the cross for us. It is in the cross then that we see the indescribable love that God has for the saints. And it is in the cross that we see rendered 
the greatest act of service ever had. Jesus says in John 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down their life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Well, brothers and sisters, it's this love of Christ that has been shown to you. If you trust in Christ, if you have the righteousness of Christ which comes through faith, but also know that it is to these and these alone that is true believers for whom Christ died. As He tells us, He came as a ransom for many, not for all. It is to the saints alone that Christ died and gave Himself up for us. He declares Himself in John chapter 10, verse 15, that He has come to lay down His life for the sheep. He didn't come to lay down His life for the goats. but for the sheep. And He says, it's the sheep who hear My voice. It's the sheep who follow Me. It's the sheep who I will not lose. And it is the sheep that I will raise up on the last day. It is only for those that the ransom has been paid. And by that payment, full satisfaction of the justice of God has been made for your behalf. And so if you have been ransomed by the blood of Christ, you have the forgiveness of sin. Right? You have union with Christ. You have justification. You have adoption. You also have victory over sin, death, and the devil through the work of Christ your Redeemer. And so, brothers and sisters, let us now walk in liberty. Let us walk in newness of life. Let us walk in a manner worthy of our Lord. As we have been given this gift of salvation, we have also then been bestowed a most certain and sure hope, have we not? that one day we will be glorified with Christ when He returns in His kingdom of glory. Right? It is in that kingdom of glory that we await glory. Not now. Right? Now, is, now is suffering. So until, we, until that day of that blessed hope in Christ returns, let us not shrink back from suffering. Let us not see greatness in the world, brothers and sisters. But let us see greatness in God's kingdom through service and through humility. Right? Let us not seek it through what the world holds up to us as greatness, but let us seek it through the example that, that Christ has given to us. As honor among men, as self-ambition, as glory now is inconsistent with the Christian life of suffering. And yet, brothers and sisters, as we go away this morning, I want us all to take comfort and encouragement knowing this, that in Christ's first advent, and as a result of His suffering and death, there remains no more curse for you and I. There is no more punishment of sin for you and I, knowing that Christ has drunk the cup of wrath due to us in full. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And what an encouragement it is to the saints. We pray, Father, that You would implant this Word by the work of Your Spirit deep within our hearts and our minds, that You would cause us not to forget it, that throughout the week this week we would continue to remind ourselves of Your Word, that, Father, You would help us to see what greatness in Your kingdom truly involves, and that we would not look for glory in this life, but rather we would with cheerfully and delightfully 
take upon ourselves suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, illuminate our eyes and our hearts, allow us to see this truth, uh, cause us to, to, to love you more than we love ourselves, to love neighbor as we love ourselves, and to exercise that in our service to one another. And so, Father, we come before you praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.